Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century. Brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders. And today we're really thrilled to have a good friend, Piper Stover with us in studio. She's got very significant experience working at the intersection of business, technology, and China. Uh, currently, Piper is the CEO and co-founder of Bank Technologies. It's an early-stage technology company focused on developing artificial intelligence and biological products for the biotechnology, pharmaceutical, and new materials industries. Man, that's a mouthful. Yeah, it's, <laughs> we're simplifying it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, guys, uh, few people I know have had more interesting on-the-ground experience in China and perspectives on where the complexities of the U.S.-China business relationship are heading. So over to you, Piper. Well, thank you, Kurt and Rich, for having me today. To start, you know, how did I get to China? I think, um, you know, I started very young after Middlebury College and learning Chinese at the language training school. Can I just I pause right, right there and ask you why, sure. why Middlebury and why Chinese? Middlebury for the language training. Okay. Um, also Vermont. Uh, my dad Good went choice. to Dartmouth and yeah. he would bring his fraternity brothers up to, uh, to Vermont to ski in the winters. And so as a youngster, I went up there every winter and, and we had wonderful winter carnivals with all the families. So loved Vermont always. But how did, how did you know you wanted to study Chinese? So that was back to my hometown in Casanova, New York, near Colgate and Cornell, that area outside of Syracuse, uh, where a very small town, one Chinese family, uh, a chef, a, an amazing, exquisite Chinese chef, and I became her, you know, right-hand prep prepper uh, for catered parties that no we would kidding. we would have, and, and yeah, so I, that was the for me it was the attraction to the culture and the people, uh, the warmth of of uh, this woman who had left Guangzhou in the early days. And how, how did she feel being the lone Chinese person in this New York village? You know, it was, everybody loved this family. This family was gracious. I mean, this is where the culture, the, the, the Chinese and the Americans, in my opinion, actually, there's a lot of similarities and, and um, a lot of uh, warmth among how families work together, especially in this conservative town of Casanova where I grew up. So, yeah, she was endeared, and, and I, I loved just working with them and laughing and giggling. I can just remember her always laughing in the kitchen. We just had a great time. Can I, can I just, <laughs> this does remind me, honestly, a little bit of my own family's experience as my, yes, yeah. as my um, mother and father being the first Indian family in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and how my mother was so kind of warmly received by all of her neighbors and friends and um, had a big impact on people. You know, it was mutual, but that's, it's such a great story that, that you tell. And, and this woman had such influence on you that you wanted to go off and study and learn more about China. Mm -hmm. But she spoke Cantonese. Her sons never actually learned Mandarin Chinese very fluently. She, but so she, she helped name me and used Cantonese to call me my name. So when I came back and was bilingual, it was funny to, to chat with her and to have her try to speak broken uh, Mandarin Chinese or Putonghua. So what happens after Middlebury? So after Middlebury, I went you know, pretty much straight to Washington, D.C., and that's when I first got my job on K Street with a trade law firm and worked 
China, Japan client cases, and then that ended up working at the U.S. China Business Council soon after that meeting, the, the crew that was doing a lot and, of the uh, and trade all told, work. Uh, and then about a decade on the ground in China in various capacities. Yeah, moved back to China quickly and started to, uh, you know, help run that office. And that was the heyday of growth in the 90s. Uh, so it worked mostly tech sectors and some of the pharmaceutical companies early they or you know early on then but these were this was just when telecom was starting I mean we were just starting to use the internet to, to yeah. communicate in the mid 90s part of the reason it's so good to have Piper here is that China is dominating the policy discussion in Washington and China and technology and America is dominating the discussion. But so few people talking about these issues have actually lived and worked yeah. in China <laughs> on technology issues for uh, a decade. And so we get caught up in all of this incredible hype and momentum to conflict and containment and, and Cold War. And I just wonder if, if you can just shed a little light on what's really going on, how concerned should we be? And I'm really talking about kind of what you saw where China's headed on the on the tech front. Um, sure. Big questions, but maybe you can unpack it a little bit. So the early days in the 90s, um, this is when AT&T, you know, the, the telecom companies were just really starting to try to create the right policies for everybody to use, use systems then. Um, and it was all open, lots of uh, mutual interest in one another's perspectives and viewpoints, a welcoming of technology. And let's let's learn from each other, and a, a welcoming on both sides, and of course some lobbying on both sides. But um, I think now, and and particularly as I started to really be interested in maybe coming back to the United States, you know, the doors were starting to close. Um, I was no longer, as a senior representative of a of a large tech company, welcome into meetings. Uh, that I previously had always been welcome to. Certain buildings couldn't even go near that I had gone to before. Um, you know, kind of a, a distrust among staff um, in various offices, including in my own. You know, uh, certainly the, the the very bonded relationships last, but there was a, a just a discomfort. And so uh, because I was really familiar with the technology sector, you know, I was probably feeling it more than some of the other consumer-driven industries that were not in that same space. So that became a problem for me. Piper, a lot of the concerns have been about, and this is where we have to unpack this a little bit, about theft of U.S. technologies, about uh, forced kind of technology transfer, lack of IP protections. And a lot of that is for commercial reasons, but I assume also a lot of it is for uh, kind of more nefarious or security uh, reasons as well. But again, I'm trying to get your sense of, no kidding, this is serious. We should be really worried about what's happening. Or is there a in-between that we should be thinking about? Well, I don't know what you want me to say, but I will say what I feel, which yeah. is, and think based on my own experiences, which I think we are at a, we are at a very serious level. And I would only say that because the national plans, and this is particularly the 13th five-year plan, is earmarked to go after uh, all of the strategic uh, areas, highest tech areas that are um, the same types of areas that we would want to continue to be uh, world leaders. So, you know, there's a there's a direct competitive threat um, backed by real state money and state-backed enterprises that are um, 
focused on the, the, the very areas where we have private sector companies that aren't necessarily as supported by our own government. So I think that's a concern. So Piper, building on Rich's question, but I'd like to ask maybe a more human kind of dimension of this. So you've lived and studied. When I first met you in the 1990s, you knew more about China than almost any person I had worked with. And you've got decades of experience now working with Chinese people. How are their attitudes towards the United States evolving? I know you can't generalize a country of you know, billions of people. But how, how do you think about that? How, so from what your experience, are, is, are, is there more distrust? Is there a hardening of views? Do you find that people are more wary of speaking because of concerns of the state? What, what, what do you observe um, sure. from your long experience? So again, I think it's really important not to just group everybody in one camp. Diversity in China is really important to remember. You, you have all sorts of people with all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and I'm friends with all sorts of these backgrounds. These, these friends range from, you know, party members to um, activists. And that's a good way to be, I think. But um, I would say that very recently, my friends uh, and contacts are, are concerned. They are uh, concerned about their own country and government and changes happening, uh, you know, in the party at the top levels, many of them are trying to leave. And you you can have real conversations with them when they are out of the country, of course. And um, I would say their viewpoint on America, you know, they'll admit as soon as they're out of the country, they're self-aware enough, many of them, to know that they're, they're reading propaganda, state-corrected news uh, and publication and, and positions about what the citizens ought to be thinking. But those who aren't as well-educated, you know, will read the state press and feel genuinely um, in agreement with what's coming out of, of the press. And there's a real resilience, I think, to the Chinese uh, people. You know, they they can, there's a saying, which is to eat bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Chinese are just so much better than we are mm. at sustaining and withstanding difficult times. And so I think that's a, a, a you know, the, the grit factor they can go through a lot worse than I think the typical American or Westerner can go through. Um, and and so, you know, they, they take the news and what they're seeing with a grain of salt because if their, you know, means of survival and their living standards are good enough, then they're not going to complain too much. I think what, the, you know, the concern is if the, if the Chinese government, if you're going to grade performance like a report card and it's maybe a C right now if you're talking to Chinese friends um, you know if they're going into a C minus D area you're going to start to see and hear more concerns and I, I think we're actually headed in that direction based on the conversations and the feedback I'm getting from my mm-hmm. my colleagues How much of this do you attribute to, there's a big debate in the United States, as you know, Piper, about how much of this is about Xi Jinping? How much is it about the Communist Party? How much is it about, like, this is just an inexorable dimension of a great power rising that 
has confidence or a, a belief in its own system competing with our own? How do, how do you answer that complex question? Well, again, I think you, you can't really say it's the Communist Party because even in the Communist Party, you have factions. Um, and those factions we often don't see. Those are very secret. But, um, you know, so it's hard to read the tea leaves of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of the, the, the things that are printed intentionally or un- unintentionally in various different um, uh, publications. So I would say that my own experience, um, when, you know, when, when President Xi came to power, um, it was, it was a, a, a clear difference in the way the, um, the policies were affecting not only foreign companies, but domestic companies as well. So even a Chinese private company, and of course I, was, I went back to China after having children in 2010-11 period, and, you know, we, we, I was working in a startup, a Chinese-American, European, very interesting platform startup. And it was so difficult to allow for the small Chinese companies to get loans and, and start to really evolve or grow with an influx of venture capital and, and foreign talent and, and um, technologies because the state was really starting to, uh, to become much more supported under the new Xi Jinping policies and directives. Um, and that was a clear departure from what was happening previously. Are you um, are you surprised about where we are today uh, in terms of the trade war, the mounting tensions? Uh, did you see this coming when you were when you were there or uh, yeah. upon upon leaving? I would say uh, absolutely. Really, I would say absolutely. Tell us, tell us why. Well, why. I, I well, remember coming back, and I think I even had a, a chat, a quick chat with Kurt at one point. He probably looked at me like, "Wow, this woman's got to decompress," <laughs> right? Yeah, but for different reasons. Well, you know, all of the above, right? I think it's just you know a little too much for too long out there. I think you can see the the signs when um, when you know it's time to repatriate. But anyway, um, with some time and and of course decompression, I look around and I see, and I'm just feeling like, yeah, this is what was going to happen, and and quite frankly, should. You know, there's if you know anything about negotiating in in China on the streets, even in Chinese, you know, it's a very emphatic and very dramatic affair, and you know, there's a time to walk away, and when you walk away and you really mean it. When you get to that price, you're just not going to pay anymore and you just know your bottom line, you better be ready to walk away. And that's when you get the price. So you really have to know your bottom line and really be ready to walk away. So do you think the last two years of, of trade turmoil has all been part of this kind of more theatrical you know, kind of performance? And both sides are, are eventually they'll this will play out, or is it is that what you were trying to? So, partisanship aside, right? I do believe that there there is a bipartisan support for having a, a more um, hardline negotiating stance, and I believe that there has been good coming from. A harder position, mm-hmm. finally, and on, on I, trade or I, on I, security I, issues. Brought more, all of the above. All of the above. Because the trade issues were unbalanced. I mean, the asymmetry. What do you teach your kids when they're growing up? Find the asymmetry. You'll do well if you find the white space or the the imbalance. Mm. We are in an asymmetrical relationship right now with the Chinese, and and that's got to change. So you again, you know, trade war is not the answer. That's that's the first 
Mm-hmm. That's the first step, and there needs to be a, a resolution to that. But, you know, what's the rest of the strategy? And that's, you know, that's... I, I think the, I think there's a larger point, though, from my view, Piper. I think some... I think there's occasionally, Rich, a disagreement of what we're in the midst of. Mm-hmm. There is one group of people that think that we're in the midst of a complex negotiation about how we're going to coexist, mm-hmm. and that has a trade, diplomatic... You know, and and that that's one framework. And there are people in both in both Democrats and Republicans that believe that. There's probably another group that quietly believe actually what we're in is a profound competition. That's really, and I know there can be overlap here, but that that competition will only render winners and losers, and we've got to get ready to struggle and fight. And there may be some negotiation in that, but the dominant part of that is maneuvering for position. And I think that framework, that struggle, is likely to present itself in either a Republican or Democratic administration. I, Piper, do you disagree with that? I, I would just say that that is, I think what you've just said is is critical because does it have to be win-lose, yeah. you know, right? But and see, so, But do you think, I, so one of the things that I struggle with with Chinese friends mm-hmm. is although they will sometimes talk about win-win solutions, my experience has been generally, they think mostly in relatively narrow win-lose yeah, they like to say win-win. Yeah. But in effect, <laughs> you know, there's a wonderful film. Have you seen the film The Farewell? Lulu Wang? No. Um, it, you've seen it, right? It's a fabulous film. Please watch it with your family. Mm. You will especially, I think, you know, anyone with with a, a family structure will really like this. But there's a scene in it where the bellhop is talking to the protagonist as she's um, going to this new hotel in the middle of nowhere to, you know, get ready for this wedding with her grandmother who's got a stage four cancer in her lungs. Um, Anyway, the bellhop is saying, you know, how is America better than us? How are we better than America? Can you explain where are, you know, where are we winning and where are they losing? And and the protagonist, uh, Billy, basically just says, it's different. We're just different. Can't we just be different? Can we have a comparative advantage in different areas? Or do you have to be the the best at everything? And I think that's a really important point to make about the relationship. And and maybe something we could work on with the Chinese is, you know, do do you have to be the best in everything? Because, you know, you see it when you're in China, even among the provinces, the competition is so intense among the domestic provinces. Everybody's trying to be the best aerospace leader. You can't. Every every province cannot be the best aerospace, and they're dumping all this money into a comparative advantage that one province just doesn't have. So that that is something to notice. You know, uh, so competition is big, and you feel it. I have another friend who just told me actually last night that, you know, it's so different now that she's living in the United States as a, a family member and a green card holder. Um, she feels an, a relaxation because she's not in the competition of China where there are five people trying to do the same thing as you and you're always trying to mm. make it. Um, and it's a, a much more relaxing place to live in America where you don't feel that same intense competition 24-7. Right. How does that compare with India, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> right. My parents would be happy if I went to medical school tomorrow. So there mm-hmm. is that sense of, you know, Getting extreme ahead, yeah, right? competition kind of internally. And I did want to just ask you about the asymmetry point you mm-hmm. mentioned. Where where do you see the 
asymmetry playing out? Well, from the business perspective, you know, just the the, the non-tariff barriers, right? So rules and regulations that foreign companies have to follow in China, but that the Chinese companies, private or state-owned enterprise, don't have to follow in our markets. You know, press, writing, freedoms of speech, um, same. You can't get, you know, the Twitters and the, and the Googles in China, but you can get the Baidu and the Alibaba here. So, you know, these asymmetries in the marketplace are, are apparent. Yeah. You spent a lot of time uh, with American companies, either in trade associations or actually working with them. Do American companies, big American companies that have significant footprint in China, do they have alternatives? Can they pick up and walk away and go to a Vietnam and Indonesia, India, if they are tired of this framework uh, that they're living under right now? Well, it, it depends on the investment. Right, so if that return on investment is starting to dwindle, and that their capital, uh, you know, footprint is not, uh, it just depends on you know looking at the balance sheet. But um, I would say that the one thing that was clear to me as I started to, you know, really think about leaving again was that the investment requirement to expand in China, the requirement by the government was in the hundreds of millions or billions to establish a new factory to have that market share promised, if you will, versus, you know, a $10 million project in Vietnam that could be grown quickly without a lot of the constraints and, and bureaucracy that you were starting to, to face in China with, you know, rising labor costs and costs in general for transportation, et cetera, that was starting to become apparent in the last few years that I was in China. The, the challenge, though, Rich, is that most companies that made investments in China put put a lot of money in China like and early on early on and have continued to sustain those investments and and you'd have to write off a lot right. to make mm -hmm. a transition and also just the recognition I mean China is bigger is more than 10 times bigger than Vietnam Vietnam has 100 million people right. and is already reaching capacity in a right. lot of areas and Can't they just they, show up there yeah, and, find and there's an absorption right. problem and and they're overheating in some areas so it's hugely challenging and so most of the companies that we work with are looking to have uh shall we say, a diversity of options, mm -hmm. remain in China, but also figure out other places. And and they're starting to do that, but they look at all the contenders and, you know, there's possibilities in India, but they have their own infrastructure challenges. Vietnam has done well in certain areas, but it's only so big. Uh, other countries in Southeast Asia... Not quite ready in no. Asia, right? So, you know, it's so, Mexico. I yeah. know that we were talking you know, aerospace, aviation, they were thinking you know, the labor and the talent was yeah. possible to move to Mexico. So, do you, do you think that the, you know, just to build on some of the things, or do you think that Chinese friends, do you think they understand that there has been a kind of awakening or at least a stop and let's reconsider elements of our relationship here in the United States over the last couple of years? From within China or? From within China, yeah. It depends on the position of both administrations um, mm -hmm. because there's some strange outlier activity going on in this administration too in mm -hmm. the United States that is making them pause for a minute as well. So it's, it's you know, everybody's a little dis just uneasy, I think. Yeah. So there's no decisions, I don't think, on either part in terms of the Lao Baixing or the common people. Mm -hmm.
so Piper, you, you you talked a lot about China and you you know your own experience in technology and the like. So you've come back to the United States and you've decided that you want to go into this new arena. You tried to explain it to me a little <laughs> while ago, and I, I'm still struggling with it. So maybe our listeners will be better prepared to sort of interpret. Give us a sense of what you're working on and the company you're leading, what you'd like to accomplish. Sure. So while I was in China and worked with United Technologies Corporation and the Research Center, I had the opportunity to meet with a lot of different sectors doing research uh, across a lot of different industries. And I did come across a, you know, kind of a convergence between artificial intelligence and uh, artificial cells. And there's a new trend in what you'd call synthetic biology to understand what makes a, a living system. So the, the the fact that we've got artificial intelligence that can do all sorts of things, um, especially considering, you know, say 15, 20 years ago, we probably never would have thought we would be wearing artificial intelligence and be able to talk on our telephones or have, you know, Siri in our, in our houses and Google Home. I mean, the things that have happened in the last 15 years, people would have thought were crazy back then. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in a spot that is seeming crazy to people. But mm-hmm. frankly... Bank BioInfo NanoCogno, a very small nanoscale or, or, you know, kind of molecular level understanding using artificial intelligence to work with living like lifelike systems to do incredible things in the future like self-repair or, you know, do we really need to have plastic anymore? Wouldn't it be great if we could actually create a molecular structure that was renewable but that could form a container uh, that would replace plastics? Or even take plastics and digest plastics. Take carbon out of the air to mm-hmm. bind molecules to carbon to reduce through a biomineralization on rocks that could actually, you know, by order of magnitude, attract carbon out of the air. How, how far are we away from some of those? You know, lifelike systems, five to seven years max. You've got people all over. And this is really, really interesting because I look at the government spending for synthetic cell development. You know, I look at China and recently, just this past year, Shenzhen, they're, they're putting a $26 billion uh, effort into Shenzhen uh, to just focus on synthetic biology and these lifelike systems that will be doing the things that I've just talked about in, you know, about 10 years max. But, you know, along that way, there are going to be developments and IP opportunities to create, you know, new sensors, um, new types of lab equipment, um, you know, health applications, taking the artificial intelligence and working with um, th- things like organoids or organelles to to test therapies rather than on humans or animals. You can actually do it in a chip. Um, so all sorts of very small uh, <laughs> technologies that we can't really get our, our head around. But that um, scientists have been working on for the last 20 years. I mean, my, my co-founder worked at Los Alamos for 20 years and has been working on lifelike systems for that long. And, and now, only now are we starting to see, oh, we could actually make something useful for mm-hmm. customers in the, say, the pharma or biotech sectors or the, you know, chemical sectors where we, you know, again, back to the plastics point or new energies, we could do things that that aren't going to be depleting our, our, you know, our biosphere the way that you see in the movie WALL-E. I, I don't know if you remember that movie if you yeah. had kids 15 years ago, but I don't really want to live on an earth that looks like what we saw in WALL-E. So this is an effort to figure out, you know, let's change up. And so the systems that are going to be coming 
be disruptive in about five to, to ten years are, are the is the area the emerging frontier tech that I'm working on right now. That's super cool. I want to try to maybe summarize where we've been in this conversation. And you're someone who has this incredible, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but kind of love of Chinese culture and people. I see your kids speak the language. Right. Um, you live there. But what's interesting is you also, and again, I don't want to characterize your views too much, but you have a, a harder line edge as well on some of the policy issues, security issues, trade issues, and economic issues. Does that make you uh, optimistic about the future between the U.S. and China? Pessimistic? Somewhere in between? Just give a sense of where where we're headed, because I was a little surprised by your tougher... Hard line, I know. Hard line. (laughs) It's, It's really interesting. Yeah, well, I think the, the the fear I have is, you know, what what do you do with all of the artificial intelligence and the data and the ability to centralize the collection and manipulation of that data? Who's behind the curtain? I think that's the concern. Not having checks and balances in a, in a system like China is the biggest threat that we have. Um, and again, people are people, right? You get them in this, which is why people, the people exchanges are so important. You get people in front of each other and actually have a real conversation without the, the propaganda and the scripts. You know, we're all humans. We can figure things out. But when you when you start to control people's movements with the social credit score in China, for example, you know, by saying something that is anti-government or, you know, look what's happening with Hong Kong and Xinjiang, it's very frightening to me. And I think that's the biggest threat we have right now. Piper, that's terrific. Can I just ask this last thing? As you, this this new area of technology you're talking about, so who are the likely winners in the United States? Who's making the investments now? So like what we saw with IT is a group of people, some from almost nowhere, right? You know, garage and stuff like that, that have now become dominant players in either, you know, software or social media and like where will the dominant folks that are working in this arena where are they going to emerge from universities research parks larger biotech firms what are we likely to see well i think you have some famous names already in in synthetic biology of craig venter the genome project and and george church but they're coming at it from a different perspective they're coming at lifelike systems from, you know, working and tweaking with existing biological structures where, you know, some of the really interesting work happening at the physics and and, and um, chemistry levels, you know, the non-organic levels, which is where I'm playing, they're in the universities right now, and that's basic research. So it's it's going to be coming out of the basic research and, and so moving into applied research and, and finding ways to fund that development. That's the space where it's going to be exciting. Um, and so I would, you know, my, I am keeping close with, with several young scientists who are sort of the protégés of, of the folks that um, I call the space cowboys who I'm working with right now, uh, where I think that we'll, we'll be able to, to bring them out of the universities and, and work with them in, in very, you know, within the next couple of years. That's fascinating, Piper. You've had such an interesting career. I think Rich and I, our whole team, wish you well in this new venture. And really, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And again, wish you the best. 
And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Piper, thank you so much uh, for being here. Thank you both. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks, Rich.